This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. It's April 23rd, so happy World Book Day. Last Thursday, the kind folks over at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue played host to our very first Bookmark Live event. I put together a small panel consisting of the incredibly erudite Pauline Fan and Zan Asli. We had close to 50 people show up and we had quite a vibrant discussion about Malaysian literature. Or rather, we asked this seemingly simple question. If you had to recommend a book, a Malaysian book, that best spoke to how you felt about this country that was somewhat in any way representative, what would that book be? We recorded that session, which I'm going to play for you right now. Here now is the conversation we had that evening, something we called Malaysia by the Book. The topic of today, of course, was built around something we kind of saw making its rounds on the internet. And I think it was CNN that did it originally, um, where they asked ambassadors uh, from different countries to recommend a book that they felt best represented their country. And uh, this gave rise to a lot of discussion on the internets about, you know, what people felt was, you know, the best piece of Americana or the best piece of Indian literature. And it got us thinking about Malaysiana or what would what would be the one book that we recommend to a foreigner or anyone who just came up to you and went, hey, I want to learn more about your country. What do you think I should read? I know it's a big question because there's so much literature, but we're going to try and get to the bottom of that right now. Before we get into the recommendations, though, Pauline, I thought we'd start with you. Is there, and this is a big question as well, but is there something that you can pinpoint in your mind that makes something Malaysian or be a part of Malaysiana? Is it as simple as having a Malaysian author? Does it have to be in a specific language? Because these are the debates that often take place. I don't think we should limit our definition of Malaysian literature too narrowly. Um, I think Malaysia as a country and also the wider Southeast Asian region is by nature um, extremely cosmopolitan, extremely diverse, extremely chaotic also. Um, And I think we should be really quite wide and embracing of the kind of literatures that exist here. It's certainly, I mean, we, of course, we have the various languages. There's uh, Malaysian literature that's written in English, Malay, uh, Chinese, Tamil, all of those. And one of the things I've always felt is that we actually don't know enough about um, each other, that English language readers tend to read, tend to stick to, to English books, um, and we probably know more about books on the Booker Prize list than we do actually about Malay literature um, or Chinese literature that is actually making it big in Taiwan. It's, a lot of it hasn't even been translated into Malay or into English. And so we're quite alienated from ourselves in a way. I wish that that was something that we could actually explore a bit more. So I, and I don't think um, there is a single thing that I can identify to say that this particular element is Malaysian literature or that um, we should... <laughs> You know, whether it's, I think everything is sort of valid as Malaysian literature if it comes from, if it's speaking to um, the people or speaking from um, the place of of being Malaysian or even people who have been here, much of Malaysian, what I still consider Malaysian literature has actually been written by people who are not Malaysian, um, who've, like Joseph Conrad, for example, um, one of the great writers, Anthony Burgess, people like that. Uh, One of the big 
threads that took place uh, in this conversation online about when, when you know, ambassadors from different countries were recommending the best works to represent their countries uh, was when they recommended works by non-citizens of their own country. How do you feel about something like that? I've always found that sometimes the works from the outsiders offer quite a unique perspective because we're so in the quagmire. Oh, yeah, that's why you have books like the Malayan Trilogy, right? Like Anthony Burgess and all that. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess to answer that question, I also want to take from uh, what Pauline said just now. Uh, we are kind of alienated from ourselves, right? Um, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I am not familiar with local Malay work, literature, right? Uh, I grew up speaking English, grew up in the urban areas, right? Uh, I only learned how to speak Malay when I was force, I had to go to standard one, then only I started learning Malay, right, and I started speaking Malay, and I grew up reading all these books from authors that were outside of Malaysia, uh, Enid Blyton, you know, uh, The Three Investigators, I was growing up, and I was never exposed to local literature, right, um, and, uh, and these books that I read didn't even represent Malaysia. They were not even about Malaysia. So I grew up in a world where I was trying to imagine myself, right, outside of Malaysia. I was probably living in England or, or, or New York. Having scones and tea with the famous five. Uh, no, exactly. with the famous five, right, right. And going on holiday with the secret seven, you know. So uh, I, I grew up like that, thinking that I was growing up in a, in a, in a foreign world. And I'm just here in Malaysia in transition, <laughs> you know, then I went to primary school. And, oh, wait a minute. I'm not going anywhere. Um, you, you know, yeah. I think that experience is quite similar to a lot of us, at least from this middle class, urban, English speaking demographic, right? In the sense that we assume growing up that the Malaysia we know is all the Malaysia we need to know. And right. so therefore, I want to explore the outside because it's far more exciting. I too came to, I guess, local Malay literature very late in life. It would have happened in secondary school. But I don't know if you guys remember Pauline Zan, what was the first piece of kind of local literature that had you really enthralled? I remember very well because it really um, transformed my idea of, of Malay literature and also the Malay language was Shannon Ahmad's Srengenge, which I think I, I read in probably form two. And it really, I mean, I still think it's a fantastic book. It really um, has, it's, it just evokes, I think, the, um, the kind of intense and sometimes um, almost devilish spirit of the wilderness of Malaysia. And, and it also I liked the fact that it spoke about rural Malaysia. Um, and, and I think it really went quite deep into the psychology of the rural Malays and also showing the conflicts that it wasn't romanticizing either. I still think that's a really fantastic book. Um, it's not my recommended book, but it should be. It's one of definitely Strengenge. If anyone hasn't read it, it's really a, an incredible book. I cannot remember any local Malaysian book from my youth, from when I was younger, right? Uh, really, I, I really can't remember. I really started looking at local literature when I had uh, already finished school, uh, almost finishing university, right? Uh, I was very unaware of my surroundings, as you can, you know, you know kind of assume, right, from how I grew up. And, and I, I was quite unaware. And slowly, I started looking around me and slowly started, started to uh, notice uh, life that is in Malaysia, right? It leads into my recommended book, which is actually in 1996, 1997, Karim Raslan's Tritala, oh. Malaysia in Transition. Right, yeah. It's quite, it's quite contemporary. It's quite modern. 
It's in the English language, written by someone who is a Malaysian, lived in UK, came back to Malaysia. And I kind of related to that, right? Um, uh, judge me, please. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I kind of related to it. And he was telling stories um, that was about ordinary Malaysians uh, from his perspective. And I guess I related to it because I didn't see these stories before that. And then I started seeing these stories. Pauline, let's get into your recommendation. My first one is a, a book by Han Su Yin, who is not Malaysian. Um, she, of course, some of you may know her, uh, probably a slightly older generation would be familiar with her works. Most of her work is not, um, a lot of her work is not available in print anymore, but this book, I think, has been republished. Um, she wrote a book called And the Rain My Drink, which she had actually lived um, in Johor Bahru for about 10 years. But I'll, I'll speak a little bit about Han Su Yin first because she's a fascinating figure. Um, she was... She was born in China to a Chinese father and a Belgian Flemish mother um, and grew up and she studied medicine. She actually became a, a doctor and her first husband was um, a Chinese nationalist, I think part of the military. Um, he was killed in, in, in the war and soon after she fled to um, Hong Kong. One of her first books, um, and which became incredibly successful, and she's mostly known for this book as Love is a Many Splendid Thing, and that was a book that she wrote in Hong Kong, and it was about a love affair that she had with a war correspondent, an Australian war correspondent, Ian, Ian Morris, Ian Morrison, yeah, um, who was later killed in the Korean War. But it, her writing is incredibly evocative. Um, it's, it's, very, it's sensual, but also intellectual at the same time. And during that time when she was in Johor Bahru, this was the time when um, the Briggs plan was, in, was taking place, when they were when the British were administering, um, relocating and resettling a lot of the rural Chinese or semi-rural Chinese from places like the rubber estates into what they called new villages. So it's a very interesting, the entire social and political framework of, of the time she was writing is extremely interesting. And also, it's something that we don't know much about. Um, it's a time that we hear a lot about, I think, in official narratives, but you don't really ever get to hear a kind of, um, I think, the voices from the people who were actually in those situations. And the, the thing I love about the book um, and the Rain My Drink, it has, of course, all of Han Su Yin's poetic and intellectual um, brilliance. But she also really tries to give voice to, she writes it from multiple perspectives. One of it is from her own perspective. So it's almost semi-autobiographical. She was serving at the time at the General Hospital in Johor Bahru. Um, and she later set up a little clinic um, on Jalan Ibrahim, I think, in Johor Bahru, and, which is now a parking lot. But she, used, she was actually there for many years serving people, including people who were kind of like rehabilitated communists. And so she had direct contact with many of these people and also people like the wives of, you know, the wives of these rehabilitated communists or people who were also still inside, um, wives of the guerrillas. You know, so people like that, she really heard those stories she does actually show the complexity of um, the, different, the different stands and positions. So it's not a black and white portrayal at all of communist and anti-communist. And, and the Chinese community, she really does show the complexity of that. Some people, it, you can't, there's no blanket uh, way of looking at them. Some people were half inside and half outside. Inside meaning inside the jungle. Um, many people were maybe not sympathetic to the cause other than the fact that they maybe had a brother or a son or someone who had fled, and therefore they still had some kind of link um, to that world. One of the things that also struck me about her book is that she really talks about, she does talk about the landscape, um, 
the wilderness, the kind of the tropics. She talks about that very well, not in a kind of colonial tone of, you know, isn't this nice and jolly and having a gin and tonic, but really in a, in a way of, you know, having she, even the oppression of being in the tropics, like um, how it slowly t- starts to grate on you and, and her own confusion of being in a place with so many layers of complexity in terms of language. Language was a big issue because many of the times she encountered mistranslations. She could speak Chinese, of course, but she also realized that many of the reports and many of the interrogations and things that were happening during that entire campaign um, was always mistranslated. That everything, everybody was speaking through interpreters. And many times they could not understand each other. Do you remember how old you were when you first read it? I think it was after I came back um, from my first degree. So I must have been about 21 or 22. Yeah, and the reason I ask that is just because I find that the books that kind of imprint themselves into our brains. And when we come and recommend things like this, it often has to do with the state of being we were at when we read it, right? Whether we were young and impressionable or old and miserable, right? Um, so my, my first recommendation, I had two books as well. My first recommendation is an obvious one, uh, but I figured we weren't necessarily going for surprising. So it's Lats Kampung Boy. And everyone's just nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, way to go, Uma. Be obvious. Um, but, but also, I mean, with good reason, because I think often people chalk lot up to being a cartoonist. Now, I think being a cartoonist is a great thing, but sometimes when people say, oh, he's just a cartoonist, they don't mean it in the same way I do. I think of Lot as one of our great novelists, and I think it's in all his work. In one of his early works, Kalorgasi Mamat, it's sequential art in the sense that they're singular strips, but when you collect them into a book, as they've done recently, you realize that it has the structure of a graphic novel. And it plays out like a graphic novel. It's just not called one, right? And it's this wonderful study, Klaugasi Mamat, of a little boy in a kampong going after his first love. There's, there's lots of hijinks with his friends and all of that stuff. So that's there. But Kampong Boy is something really quite unique for me because I think it gives a fantastic, accurate, not just nostalgic picture of this slice of Malaysian life. It's not all of Malaysian life, but it does give a slice of what a Malay individual living in that specific kampong would have gone through growing up. And I say I, u- I say I use all those erratas because I think it's impossible to have one piece of literature, and correct me if I'm wrong or you disagree, that kind of represents all of Malaysia. I, I-, I don't know if there are any novelists here out there who are striving for that great Malaysian novel like Americans often do. And I don't think everyone is as cocky as Sashitaro who writes a book and calls it the great Indian novel. But Kampung Boy I- I- in itself is... It's, it's poignant, it is funny, like, yeah, funny is so important, and, and it is, it laughs at itself, it laughs at other people, it doesn't necessarily talk down to you, the reader, in trying to tell that story, I think it's just got all the makings of a great piece of literature. We get to our second recommendations of the best of Malaysiana in just a little bit, you're listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. This is Bookmark. I'm Uma Paganam Pagan, and on today's show, I'm playing you a live-to-tape session that we did of this show over at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue. I was talking about the best of Malaysian literature along with Pauline Fan and Zan Asli, and about 50 of you as well. Here now is the rest of our conversation. Zan, do you think there needs to be a 
or can there be a great Malaysian novel? I mean, can there be a novel that speaks to all of us? Look at this. We're all different colors in this room and we've all had, I'm assuming, completely different experiences growing up in this country. Do you think it's possible or is that just, is that just idiocy? I don't think that's possible. Uh, think about it like me, for example. I, I, I tried to read these uh, classic Malay literature novels and all that. I mean, I did go and take a look at Salina. I did go and take a look at Shan Lamad's book, uh, Sri Rengi and all that. I, I did. I, I like the stories and all that. But I have to be honest, right? It doesn't that, speak to you. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it does, but the language is a little bit not for me, right? I can speak Malay. Saya boleh cakap bahasa Melayu. Tak ada masalah cakap bahasa Melayu. I can speak Malay. And I'm very comfortable in Malay too. And I do write in Malay as well. But when I look at local Malay literature, um, I tend to go for the English writers. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? But I do. Uh, and that kind of just... That's, that's just me, right? So I think that different Malaysians from different layers of society in the country might relate to different stories and different ways of telling stories and different languages too. We've got the English-speaking Malaysian, we've got the Malay-speaking Malaysian, we've got Tamil-speaking Malaysians, we've got the Mandarin and Cantonese-speaking Malaysian, Hokkien, Hakka. Yeah, so I don't think it's possible to have that one book that represents all of Malaysia, yeah. It's a relatively new phenomenon. I can understand when you say that the language doesn't necessarily speak to you or is accessible because I think over the last decade or so, we find um, traditionally there was that DBP language, right, that Malay authors tend to write with. And that's the kind of stuff a lot of us read in school and were forced to read in school. Um, and I think of late, and I think... I think Amir Muhammad had a lot to do with this with Fixie and Matahari and his publishing house. And then now, you know, there's Dubok and Legend and all these other presses that are coming up. It's encouraged young people to write in a language and a lingo that they're familiar with and that is accessible to their peers. Pauline, tell me about, I guess, the importance of that. I mean, you indulge in so much translation, making that transition between Bahasa Sastra and Bahasa DBP to a Malay that's actually accessible. Well, I think even I think we need to contextualize Dewan Bahasa as well because I think in in the seventies Dewan Bahasa was really publishing some really radical stuff. Oh yeah, and a lot of the great literature of I mean people like Shannon Ahmad, people like Latif Mohidin, of course, um, which leads me to our second recommendation. But the but people like that were published by DVP and and really did kind of break through. Um, they were sort of modernist and or trying to be modernist, and I think they really did have a vision of a kind of, at least striving for a kind of modernism in Malay literature. And so you had people like Dunku Alias Taib. I mean, they are still, I think, very radical um, voices in Malay literature. I think the, what DVP has become ossified over the years, you know, and, and it's all to do with politics and bureaucracy and all of that. I mean, some perhaps unavoidable, um, who knows, but... The fact I, think, is that, I think the word ossified is perfect. Yes, yeah. it is quite an ossified <laughs> institution. However, I think we shouldn't forget what DBP once was. And some of the publications that did come out of there, even, even journals like Dewan Sastra used to be very interesting. And they used to have very interesting debates and conversations in those pages. What they've become now and the fact that they don't anymore perhaps speak to the young or the young feel really quite alienated from it. I and mean, I think it's a great thing that people, there are other avenues that they can um, express themselves and find their own voice. And there are some uh, there are some young Malay writers I think who are very very worth 
reading, absolutely. And also to pick up with what Pauline said and what you, said, you, you, you touched on, uh, it brings me to my second recommendation. I'm going to jump the gun. Oh, you <laughs> have a second recommendation uh, yeah, too? You think only you guys can have, only the two of you can have a second recommendation. So Morang okay. breaking the rules. All right, fine. <laughs> and Carry I'm on. Grabbing, and I'm just grabbing the mic from Pauline, right? <laughs> um, my second recommendation is Salih Ben Jonet. Salih Ben Jonet's book uh, called Nothing is sacred. Yeah. It's a compilation of his columns, just like Karim Raslan's book too. Um, I, I'm a journalist, so everything's based on non-fiction and journalistic writing, right? And Salih Ben Jonet has always, uh, to me, I think the book was published in the early 2000s, maybe. Right. Yeah. yeah. He was a rebel, right? Uh, he hated DBP. We all know he hated DBP. He once told the famous story of when he went to the DBP building and peed by the side of the wall. Uh, and that was a great act of protest. I <laughs> yeah. quite like that story. I know and a lot of people I'd like to pee on. I may have to censor that. I don't think I can add that bit. All right. Oh, and I don't mean in a sexy way. No. No, no, no. <laughs> It's you like real showers, right. like real showers. Carry on. <laughs> uh, and, and he criticized um, uh, local literature. He criticized Malay writers. He criticized the Malays. He criticized uh, uh, the religion, you know, like, like Islam and all that. And, and yeah. You know what's interesting about um, that collection of essays by Saleh? Which is, if you read it today, and if you change the names of the politicians, hmm. the plot lines <laughs> are exactly the same. Yeah. No, literally, the, the arguments about religion, about language, about the English language, about all of these things that were printed at the NSD at the time, I swear we've, we're going through the exact same. It's cyclical, right? I mean, cyclical. Everything happens. And yeah, if you change the name of the politicians, the storylines are exactly the same. Yeah, very true. Yeah. And I mean, that's where I get my inspiration for my column. Yeah, you just reread his book and then you're like, wait a minute. I shall paraphrase everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, Sully was true, also a poet. Mm. Um, as well and he no. was my mother's literature teacher in UM oh really <laughs> yes wow yes. Uh, and I think uh, I would also like to add the fact that uh, now I have started to really enjoy reading Facebook statuses by certain people and I actually follow them just to read their Facebook statuses only because statuses. you're a troll I just, well Yes, Umar. Yes, Umar. Uh, you know, people like Art Harun and all that. Yeah. I, I love Jabba Sadiq. You know, well, I love reading their Facebook statuses because it's like a snapshot, you know, of things that are happening around. Well, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because I know um, uh, my, my, second, my, my second recommendation is Rehman Rashid's Malaysian Journey. And towards the last few years of his life, before he finished publishing his last two books, he actually turned to Facebook to do a lot of his writing or he would write these small excerpts on Facebook and he would often ask me, he would often ask me what was the point of it all. But I think he found a lot of interest in the engagement he was getting on Facebook. He kind of exiled himself to Kuala Kubabaru. So I think the, I mean, it would drive him insane sometimes, but I think it was also an interesting insight about as to how people felt about things. And you're right. A lot of people tend to turn to these mediums because I think for their spontaneity and instant nature. But when people like Jaba and Rayman and Art write their status updates, they're often very well thought out and formulated and they're pieces in themselves, right? They're not, man, this cappuccino sucks. Yeah, nothing quite They're like not that. rants. Yeah, right? they're, not, they're rants. not keyboard warriors but either. Even, even if they're rants, they're very clever rants, which we like. But I'll get into my second recommendation as to why I love it so much. But Pauline, what was your second recommendation? Uh, my second, second recommendation is Latif Mohidin's Sungai Mekong. Um, that was the... F- I think it was the first uh, volume of poetry that came out by Latif Mohidin, and this was soon after he had returned um, from travels in Europe. He, of course, spent. Latif Mohidin is, of course, um, a very 
important, really actually very radical um, poet and also a painter and has been really contributed a lot to a new vision of Malay, Malaysian modernism. Um, particularly as a poet, I think he's genius. Um, and this, this volume of poetry, I think, did mark, it was kind of a, um, a landmark moment for Malaysian poetry in many ways. He brings, of course, um, a lot of sensibilities from the outside um, into the Malay language. He is extremely, I mean, he has a big influence of uh, particularly German expressionism, both in his visual art as well as in his, uh, in his writing. He was very close and really loved people like um, Georg Trakl, for example. Of course, Rilke has always been a big influence on him. And, uh, and for people who know that other side of um, European poetry, I think you can kind of feel the traces of that in, in Latif Mohidin's poetry as well. Um, but, even, but he was speaking about the region. And he was speaking, Sungai Mekong, of course, is the Mekong River um, of Indochina. And he did travel, after traveling um, around Europe, he returned and he traveled to the region. This was during the time of the Vietnam War. You know, and he did, he did travel to many of those countries, spent a long time in Thailand, traveled to Indonesia, um, Cambodia. It's not enough of that. No. Like in contemporary isn't. writing, Malaysian, yes. contemporary Malaysian writing. Yes. But um, his language, I think, I think his language is actually, is still actually startling in its lyricism and its beauty. I mean, really, the beauty of his Malay is something that always still to this day gets me. Um, so it's really worth picking up a copy or finding a copy. I don't know how easy they are to find anymore, but um, he will actually be republishing the whole, the entire set of his uh, poetry, all, those, all seven volumes or whatever it is. They will be republished hopefully soon. Um, also, Edin is translating the whole collected poems of Latif Mohidin um, into English. Oh, cool. Yes, he is. Um, so you can speak to Edin as well. Some of those are already published. Um, but there's an interesting story actually about um, Latif Mohidin's Sungai Mukong. Is that so? It won the first Hadiyah Sastra in uh, 1973, I think. And there's an interesting story that Edin has told me. I will relate it since I'm on the panel, not him. But um, <laughs> he's, he, um, so Latif Mohidin was one of the candidates for this Hadiyah Sastra. And on the selection committee or the judging panel was Usman Awang, Samad Ismail who I think was, was leading that, the great Samad Ismail, legendary um, journalist. I think also Lloyd Fernando, Christian Jit, and Edin's father, Professor Kuke Kim. Were all that the is selection a heavy panel. panel. Yes, heavy wow. panel, absolutely. And Shannon Ahmad apparently was carrying the files. This is according to Edin. <laughs> but young Shannon Ahmad. But apparently Usman Awang, who is of course one of the great poets of the Malay language, um, he picked up Sungai Mukong and went to Professor Ku and said... I know this book is very good, but I don't know why it's good. And so can you please, I can't make sense of it, can you please judge it and decide? And they did eventually decide to give the Hadiyah Sastra to Latif Muhyiddin. Wow. Yeah, yes, it's very interesting um, story. And really, I think still, it, has, it is still um, one of those books that I think speaks to the Malay landscape, speaks to the entire region's sensibility. It's both, it's very central, um, there's a lot of longing. There's a lot of, um, yeah, pick it up. I don't know where you can find a copy, but try to find one. There are some um, of his poems on Lyric Line, which is, it's a poetry archive that's based in Berlin, but it's an online archive. We actually recorded Latif Mohidin reading some of his poems, and some of those poems are available there in his own voice. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. 
so yeah, so my recommendation, my second recommendation, uh, yet again, it's, I think it's a book that just influenced me when I was very, very young, and it was Rayman Rashid's The Malaysian Journey. And for obvious reasons, more so even because of the story behind the book, because I, just, I, I think it is something that often we as Malaysians worry about, you know, fight with Mahadeh, get sacked from your job, go into exile, cannot come back to Malaysia, finally come back, write a book about all of these feelings you have for the country, and then get hired back into the old job that you were sacked from, right? Um, it's, it's a very Malaysian story. But also, it's, 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 it's Rayman Rashid, and, um, who passed away, unfortunately, uh, last year. Um, he used to be my old boss. Uh, he taught me everything I know about writing. And I loved his book before I met him. And I think the reason being is that it was a very interesting chronicle of him returning to a land that he left, and all of these new insights he was taking away from coming home. He ends the book on a very interesting note, which is one of hope, because he comes across individuals which kind of fill him with hope for the future that we would somehow break beyond our communal politics and all of this stuff. And this was written more than two decades ago. And unfortunately, that last chapter, that epilogue, you could write it today if you still had a sense of hope for the country. And it hasn't changed in 20 years. It's a little depressing. But there's both a sense of, I guess, prescience and unfortunate nature to that epilogue, right? Um, the other thing I love about Rayman is I love his love for the English language. I mean, he is often criticized for using big words when he could have used smaller words. And I've asked him about this as well. And, and I think he always, he always explained it to me this way. He said, yes, there are other words, but the English language often has a perfect word to describe something. Sometimes that one word can do the work of seven words, right? And it's just often not used. But he had a real passion for the language and he knew how to, and he knew how to utilize it well. And so if you read this book, it is as much a love letter to the English language from a Malaysian as... As, 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 as brilliant as its content is, right? Um, yeah, it's sad that it's still relevant after 25 years. Uh, it's a piece of nonfiction. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. And it kind of traverses the history and politics of this country. There's a very interesting bit where he's being interrogated by a special branch. The head of the special branch at the time, I think it's Tansi Rahim No, who eventually became our IGP, asks him who he thinks was right, Tuah or Jebat. And for me, that is the most poignant bit in the book because I believe that that is the perennial problem that plagues Malaysian politics today. It doesn't matter which side of the political divide you fall on, but those are the two sides. Like, if you fall on one side, you believe Jabat was right. And if you fall on the other side, you believe Tuah was right. And that is pretty much that story that took place hundreds of years ago has screwed us up for generations, right? Tuah or Jabat? Tuah or Jabat? That is the question. <laughs> uh, Uma, I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, you once said that Malaysian journey, I like, I like Malaysian journey too, and right? once you said that that is the closest to the great Malaysian novel ever. Am I correct? You, you once said I that. Did. Something like that, right? I did, I did, I did. I, do, do you think that uh, that book itself, yeah, we all get it, but do you think like the rest of Malaysia gets it? Maybe middle Malaysia, rural Malaysia... Oh, yes. I mean, okay, like the, mm-hmm, the English is a bit high-end. So your English, you know, you may be looking up at thesaurus. I, I often do when yeah, I read too. that book, when I read his writing. It was never translated, actually. I mean, I believe there was an attempt to translate it into BM. But Rayman, God bless his soul, is a very difficult customer. And unless you could get it absolutely perfect, there was no way he was going to approve that for print, right? Um, and so, no. And the reason I said that was because I think 
um, it was the most, it had pop culture accessibility to our history and politics. And I think very few writers, and I think that comes from Raymond's journalistic sensibilities. I think very few writers can actually pull that off. And I thought that's what, yeah, it was a bit of a misnomer because it's not really a novel. But at the same time, I think it does hold up, I guess, in the canon of Malaysian literature. Lah. Yeah, okay, let's turn it over to you. We've been talking for a long time. Who wants to go first? Don't be shy. The only request I have is we're recording everything, so put up your hand and I'll come to you with the mic because um, that's the only way this is getting into the machine. Lah. Who wants to go first? Who's got a recommendation? I was started reading Anthony Burgess's Malayan trilogy. Surprisingly entertaining, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's basically so written about sort of life in what 1950s Malaya from the point of view of a, of an English teacher, right? It's a former colonial um, sort of functionary who became a teacher and teaching in was a thinly veiled Malay college, right? And it's quite funny because because he's white and he's writing from a white man's perspective, he takes huge liberality in talking about Malaya as it is, like the Sultan and his drunken bingers, you know, that kind of thing, right? And uh, quite, and, and for someone like me who, who, um, who obviously has grown up in the 80s and 90s with a very sanitized view of what Malaya was or ought to be, and suddenly this guy just writes it as it is, it's just very refreshing. So if anyone hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. Yeah. First off, I have to say, I'm a terrible Malaysian. When you guys were talking about all that stuff, I was like, who? Usman Awang? Yeah, okay. I think I remember this. Just coming across <laughs> the name. Sharon Awang? Yeah, I know the name. Uh, Karim Raslan? Yeah, but that's because I interviewed for his company when I first came back to Malaysia. Um, and to be quite honest with you, I really don't have a Malaysian book recommendation. Because I am a part of a generation of uh, Malaysians, English educated, studied overseas, not Chinese enough to be Chinese, not Malaysian enough to be Malaysian. So I'm strangely in between. If I had to recommend a book that represents Malaysia, I'm going to delve deep into my training uh, in university and say Plato's Republic. <laughs> and... <laughs> And the reason I say Plato's Republic is because, at least from where I'm standing, <clears throat> Malaysia is this really interesting social experiment with a lot of structures in place. But at the end of the day, there's also a lot of wayang going on. We're also looking at a lot of the shadows being cast by uh, the authorities with their shadow puppets and what have you. And I really can't say that uh, I blame, well, I mean, <clears throat> the... Taishun is coming up in a week or so. Uh, the, uh, and uh, I think a lot of people are very interested in the outcome of that particular election. And uh, a part of me really feels that the outcome is already decided. The masters that be have already decided what the outcome is going to be. So depending on where you're standing, some people consider Plato's Republic to be a work of uh, satire. Some people think it's this real thought of what political governments is, uh, governance is supposed to be like. Uh, but I, I, I think it's, it's really not too far off from, where, from, 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 from what Malaysia is. Uh, I, I love my country. Don't arrest me, please. So if you're talking about two books that really represent Malaysia, the first I'd say is The Choice. Maybe if, you, if you can count as one book, volume one and two, by Ahmad Didat. Partly because, I mean, I'm not terribly religious myself, but I feel that a lot of the, uh, that the political landscape of Malaysia heavily relies on that kind of, I need to explain this, 
how do I do this from a smart point of view where if, you, if, you, if you're against me, you're a bigot. If you're with me, let's get coffee together. Uh, and the second book, I'd say, represents Malaysia itself, is the Sandukan novels by Italian author Emilio Salgari. Because I think those novels, I haven't read them all. I've only read half of the first. Not really, not really qualified to talk, to talk much about it, really. But I think it plays a lot into the sort of mysticism that we as a superstitious culture often use to describe things, as well as how... It's interesting on seeing how, at that time, an outsider, an Italian, would see Malaysia. And from that perspective, it, yes, okay, these, in, in his own terms, we, that would be their kind of Cinderella for, their, for us. Because you know, Cinderella is not native to our culture, yet we, a, lot of our, a lot of our kids have grown up watching it and have empathized with that character. I suppose that Emilio Salgari tended to use uh, his perspective of what Malaysia was through his 11 novels to try and put that into the children of Italy at the time. And at the time, in the 1900s, when it was published, it was considered a relatively, relatively successful series. And all you know, I think he did, uh, not, not terribly accurate, but he captured the feeling of what a uh, gung-ho Malaysian pirate story would have been. Those are my thoughts. And there you have it, our very first bookmark live. I would like to thank Pauline Fan and Zan Asli for agreeing to be on my panel. I would like to thank Elaine and Minhan over at Lit Books for graciously hosting us. If you haven't already, you should really go and check out the store. It is a book lover's paradise. We're going to be doing a lot more of these, so keep a lookout on Facebook and right here on this show for details on the next event. You've been listening to Bookmark. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.